Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. It is the last Thursday of May and that means this month in birding and I want to get you to that. But first, a quick thanks for those who came out to the Academy of Natural Sciences at Drexel University in Philadelphia last weekend for the For the Love of Birds event. It was, from my perspective at least, a great time with a fascinating panel of birders, Holly Marker and Anwar Abdulkawi. Thanks especially to those podcast listeners who, who came up and chatted afterwards. It's always nice to hear from you all in person. I know from our statistics that Philadelphia is a bit of a hotbed of bird podcast consumers in addition to being a hotbed of American ornithology. I have great news for those of you who may have missed the event. The Academy of Natural Sciences recorded it. They will send it over to me and I will be able to repurpose it into a podcast so you can hear it as well. That is exciting and will probably be coming sometime in the next few weeks. I'm excited for you to hear it. So under the panel, we've got Molly Brown, Nicole Jackson, and Ryan Mandelbaum ready to talk about prairie chickens, bird strikes, and fire, among other things, all after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the third week of May, 2023. In what is probably the most predictable first record that I can remember for some time, Ontario finally documented its first limpkin this week, a bird in Simcoe County, north of Toronto, not far from the White Wagtail, we talked about a few weeks ago, interestingly enough. When predicting this record some time ago, which I should point out was not a feat of birding knowledge by any means, it was probably as predictable as the phases of the moon, I am no bird Nostradamus after all. I pointed out that this was likely Canada's first record, or that it would be likely Canada's first record. It turns out that is not the case. There are records from Nova Scotia, of all places, from the 1950s and 60s, including a bird that was captured and released. Nonetheless, this is the first in Canada from this most recent and ongoing eruption, almost certainly not the last. Another first record comes from New York, where a Hearman's goal was found on the Lake Ontario shore in Wayne County. I don't always like playing the same bird game where we try to predict the movements of an individual bird, but it does seem most likely that this Hearman's goal is the same one that represented Ohio's first last month and is moving eastward along the southern shore of Lake Erie and now Ontario, in which case, sorry, Pennsylvania. And looking back to the early part of May to a bird that I overlooked at the time and about which there was not a lot of discussion, funnily enough, a yellow-headed caracara, which has not been officially accepted to the ABA checklist, was photographed in Burnett County, Texas, which is northwest of Austin in early May. It was on private land and not chaseable by birders, which I think contributed to the, the lack of discussion about it. Uh, but this widespread and adaptable neotropic raptor has been documented in the U.S. before, notably earlier this year in Florida and outside the ABA area in Jamaica, and it is undergoing a northward range expansion. Even so, it is difficult to know what to make of these birds. There are previous accounts from California, North Carolina that were not accepted by local committees due to Providence, but a cluster of records have we seen at the beginning of this year, along with a larger pattern of southern species turning up far to the north in the last 12, 18 months, does suggest that natural occurrence might not 
be able to be ruled out? An interesting question to be sure. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full checklist, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. It is the last Thursday of the month of May, and that means it is time here on the American Birding Podcast to bring on a panel of birding friends to talk about bird news and goings on as we do. It is another excellent panel this month for the month of May, the birdiest month of the year, according to some. Uh, we'll go ahead and introduce our uh, our esteemed group of people here. Uh, she is from the Birding Co-op and the Nighthawk Agency, but if you are a fan of bird podcasts, as you all should be, you probably know her as one of the hosts of the Life List podcast. It is Molly Brown. Welcome back, Molly. Thank you very much. Glad to see you again. And next up, an Ohio naturalist and entrepreneur behind In Her Nature, nature therapy program for black women. It is our friend, Nicole Jackson. Hello, Nicole. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you. And uh, last, a science writer based in Brooklyn, whose work has appeared in so, so many places, not least of which as a regular guest here. It's Ryan Mandelbaum. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Nate et al. So excited to be here. <laughs> so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you here. We are deep, deep into the birding season. Uh, spring is, is whipping by far too fast, but we do have summer breeding bird survey and all that stuff to look forward to, or at least, at least I do. Uh, but before we put spring behind us completely, I want to know about your most exciting birding experience you've had this year, this spring, and perhaps how this spring stacked up to those in the past, has it been a good spring? Has it been a slow spring? I've been hearing, I've been hearing both from my, uh, my contacts in the birding world. It's been all right here. Wouldn't say the best, wouldn't say the worst. Yeah. That's in West Virginia. Yeah. Par for the course. Yeah. How about you guys? New York City has been pretty good. I think that what we noticed is that things were really delayed. Like the birds yes. we expect in late, late April were not showing up until, um, early may and that was okay because this is like been the year of the hooded warbler and the cerulean warbler in brooklyn we've mm, had cool. hooded warblers breed in new york state they're not so rare you can generally expect to see a couple each year but this is like hooded warbler every day often singing often you know nice and cooperative and then i found two cerulean warblers this year which is mm, oh, sometimes we don't get any you. so i'm having yeah. a great spring so far yeah how about you, Nicole? How's Central Ohio? Yeah, I would say the same as Molly. Um, I feel like it's been slow and definitely delay, but um, I've been more in the like teacher mode of yeah. birding mm -hmm. uh, this year, which has been really exciting for me just to get um, kind of newbies into bird watching and showing them kind of what is showing up um, in Central Ohio, but also using you know the apps, the, the Merlin app and, and eBird. Um, to better document what they're get, getting. And I myself are, you know, I'm excited about spring all the time. So any <laughs> birds I get, I'm like, yay. Um, but yeah, definitely um, I've noticed a lot of, a lot more uh, with hornetary oh, um, yeah. warblers, as well as the, um, what am I thinking of? Uh, veerings. Oh, um, yeah. That's something oh, I cool. didn't get last year. So was really excited to, to see um, a few of those uh, in my backyard. Have there nice. been enough? Have there been enough birds to keep the newbies, the beginners, happy? That's the important question. Yeah, I think it's more of them just calming down from 
<laughs> realizing how many more birds uh, that are out there versus, you know, your usual um, suspects and like, you know, your robins, blue jays, cardinals. I feel mm-hmm. like there's still more excitement around, you know, the reds and the blues and the yellows. But yeah. like once they realize there's this whole other, you know, kind of migration um, set of birds, then I think they're kind of there brains explode so yeah. uh keeping them calm the in those situations <laughs> <laughs> nicole have you gotten to show a newbie a scarlet tanager because that i think is the best thing to show a new person i've gotten a summer tanager with a newbie cool. and oh, they were just yeah. yeah they were just as because they we heard it first mm-hmm. and they're like i've never heard that song in my life and it was literally right above us because we were actually looking at osprey and once we saw it singing and it didn't like fly away, oh my goodness, their like jaw was agape. So it was just yeah. more of like <laughs> these birds exist. So yeah, yeah that was exactly I would say right. the summer tanager. Yeah, I um I've been birding so long that I don't really remember that first that first spring, uh, that new experience of being a brand new birder and experiencing that, you know, the first migration. Um mm-hmm. it's it, so I have to live vicariously through <laughs> through other people who are sort of getting into it new and and that's uh that's gotta be really exciting. A lot of these birds are ones that I, I, I'm pretty familiar with. I know them. I expect them every year. And and to show them to people who are just now getting into the world and seeing that this is actually happening, that all these birds, are millions of birds are coming through um, and at once is, uh, I, it's got to be, a, as you said, it's got to be a mind-blowing experience. Yeah, because I'm, I'm very familiar with a good, I, I, I would say I know more than the typical person so Mm -hmm. they're just confused as to like how how do you have time how do you know like (laughs) oh yeah you know where are you going like all of these things and i i get really excited showing people um kind of like the pocket parks Mm -hmm. of of where to go you know because they feel like they have to you know do these long road trips or go to Mm -hmm. places that are far away and i'm like no it's literally like i have a trail right behind my yeah (laughs) right apartment complex and they're like what all these birds are showing up here like the other day we got a a pileated woodpecker um that was just along the trail and you know people i mean it wasn't a huge crowd but you know for for me to see it right next to the trail that i use frequently yeah it was an amazing fun time so um really cool I uh I got this I, I was on live TV on Fox Weather like earlier this month to talk about birds and birding. Um they wanted just someone to talk about it was for Migratory Bird Day and they settled on the American Birding Association and I got the, you know, <laughs> I don't know if I drew the long straw or the short straw for that one, but anyway, <laughs> I was on I was on the TV talking to the, you know, weather people on this national uh, news program and it was like a little little three, four minute hit. And um I had some cool photos and I showed them the Doppler radar of all the birds taking off and i swear like the first time people see that that is a, that is a that is an incredible experience to like know that those are millions and millions of birds taking off from these spots right after the sun goes down and heading to you you know you don't have to go anywhere they're coming to you and uh <laughs> yeah especially weather geeks who are used yes. to using doppler for other purposes so that was cool that was probably the, my highlight of the spring but i did go to ohio and um yeah, as you said everything seemed a little delayed um, towards the end of the week, the weather turned and stuff's really started hitting hard. And, uh, there was some neat things on the boardwalk as a whippoorwill. Uh, I don't oh, know, cool. count on one hand, how many whippoorwills I've actually seen as opposed to heard. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was, that was cool. Uh, it's always nice to be out there among the birds and, and among the people looking at the birds. 
That's pretty cool. We had a lot of whippoorwill movement around here. Oh, and, really? Yeah. Uh, and they kind of, they're, they're in spotty areas as breeding. But it, sure. it's really interesting to watch really in all of your areas, like more east of here and in, in Ohio and up through especially Biggest Week where I'm seeing a lot of updates and then the East Coast because like... Um, for instance, I saw a lot of people on the East coast talking about bay breasted warblers moving Mm -hmm. a few days back. And that's usually something that hits here and they're all over for a few days. And I would say we Mm. didn't have it this year. Hmm. And, uh, it's kind of hit or miss on a lot of times we don't follow the same patterns right where I am. That's just a little bit higher elevation and hillier, I think, than either side of the mountains. Yeah. And it kind of varies from year to year. It feels like I, I think not just this, this is just looking at like bird cast and the Cornell tools that they have available to, to follow bird migration. But it really seemed like migration was really hitting along the Mississippi uh, corridor mm-hmm. this year. Like the, the maps were really bright there mm-hmm. and they were less so as you went east. So maybe that's what a lot of people are seeing. I don't know. But, you know, the birds are, are moving through eventually. Yeah. 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 Just got to wait for them. Yeah. I would actually say our diversity higher than average for oh, like really? the sort of that's central cool. area here we had a couple storms that like knocked down a lot of shorebirds at the right too. time oh yeah. really oh that's neat nice yeah it's been Fun a very stuff. wet spring yeah mm-hmm. yeah so i'm just thinking about this uh this bird more and more i'm just getting you were talking about getting the short end of the stick and i feel like this <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um bird for sure uh the lesser prairie chicken um was <laughs> Essentially, it's it's being considered um, delisted through the House Committee, and it's like dangerously vulnerable, like one of the most vulnerably uh, endangered uh, species in North America. I think it was last year that it was added to um, the endangered species list through U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and now it's in danger. Um, of being delisted, which is really unfortunate because this bird is going through enough. Like it's, you know, since I think it was 1960s that um, its population uh, declined by like more than 90%. So it's struggling. It's it's struggling. And sure, because of, you know, political reasons and, you know, this is the science and not being fully understood, but like this, this bird definitely needs uh, protect protecting and yeah just more science and research to to make sure um it stays on that list and and gets what it's needed as as far as um more of the policy protection so yeah yeah this is really frustrating news because as you said the bird was just just added to the endangered species list and now they're going to turn around and take it off um i i spoke at a lesser prairie chicken festival last year in kansas where there are still Many of the, I mean, that's where the bulk of the population is in Western Kansas. Yeah. So they're still hanging on there. Um, but I was supposed to speak before COVID at a festival in Oklahoma that eventually got postponed because of the pandemic and then was outright canceled, not because of the pandemic, but because they had a hard time finding lesser prey chickens to show people yeah. at this festival anymore, which is uh, kind of an ominous, an ominous uh, stroke hmm. for this thing. And, and it is, it's a cool bird. I think like grassland prey birds are kind of undervalued yep. just in general. There's there's a lot of, as you said, politics involved with Endangered Species Act stuff, and it's hard enough to get a bird on the list. The fact that they would yeah. feel the need to take it off so quickly is is extremely frustrating. And this is the 50th anniversary year of uh, the Endangered Species it is. Act. So oh, exactly yeah. right. I just bizarre to me. The 
thing with this bird and with a lot of these grassland birds is that like their range is so restricted to in like often just the United States. And I just mm-hmm. like one thing that always helps for me when I'm trying to explain like why birds are important to people is people really go for this sort of like nationalist, like America pride thing. It's like mm-hmm. this bird's range <laughs> is like just this small little patch yeah. of the U.S. Like this is America's Literally bird. The middle, like the middle. Yeah, yeah, like this America is America endemic. This US is something endemic. people should be excited about because it's like you. Um, this is a bird that's really special, really cool. Mm-hmm. They do this, you know, this amazing lacking thing, and the only place you can see is the United States. People right. pay money to come to the United States to see this bird. So I just don't see why. Like, like I don't see why people aren't just like so excited about our endemic bird species and this and conserving them and making sure that you know America. Yeah, rah rah rah. <laughs> just I don't know. It frustrates me. well i think that this can be a really tough thing to convey to like the general public because Mm -hmm. i think on the surface things that something is delisted a lot of people would assume that that's a good thing because it means a you know increasing trend in their population Mm -hmm. and i i think that it's really difficult to put into how how much politics comes into anything that's involved with the endangered species act and how much data is forgone by um, different, especially industries and developments that are competing forces on the political scale that are yes. trying to push to keep an endangered species off of that. Yeah, you're exactly right. There's a, there are a lot of myths that sort of are out there about the Endangered Species Act, endangered species Act and how uh, among just landowners thinking that, you know, the government's going to come around and, and take your land away. Or you don't have access to it anymore if you're if there's an endangered species on it. But the fact of the matter is, is if there's an endangered species on your land, that means you've been doing a good job conserving yeah. your land. Yeah. And you know, I've I've heard stories of people down here in the southeast where they think they have red cockaded woodpeckers on their property, which is of course a protected species, an endangered species. And they'll go and they'll chop down all the pine trees on their land to keep the, to keep the woodpeckers away and to keep the Mm -hmm. government away. And it's just like this mindset that is just, it's, it's toxic and it needs to be, I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can solve that because if, but I have seen in Kansas, people who are doing work on these lesser prairie chickens and most of the leks that still exist are on private properties. People have this land that they use to graze cattle and they do it. They manage it in a sustainable way such that the prairie chickens come back year after year after year and they're still they're still using these leks and you know when they talk to the people who are doing the researchers that are doing this work then they're they're usually pretty friendly with them um most of the time the researchers want to keep doing what they're doing exactly the same thing that they're they're doing but of course you know economic pressures being what they are sometimes it's it's hard for individual farmers to to keep to do that like the pressures are are difficult on them and i i don't know i don't know what the solution is it's it's hard because it, the way that the land conservation is done in the Western United States is is such a, this weird patchwork of government and public lands and private lands and these it's it's it can make your head spin. Obviously, not everything is working for this this species, and um, taking it off the endangered species list seems to be a a I don't know as as you say it's not a good thing for this bird. It's it's a it's a political issue that um, you know you wish you could you wish you wouldn't see it. You hate to see it, I guess. Yeah. I think that's interesting with the the politics and even the economy mm-hmm. aspect of it. Wouldn't you want to provide, like you were saying, provide the the right habitat and conditions for that bird, you know, that's specifically in that region mm-hmm. is in connection to 
the economy and like having, you know, like ecotourism, like, yeah, you know, like that doesn't like, how is that not, (laughs) but then also just thinking about land in general and it just shows how much of a disconnect we have from nature and that, you know, it's, it is, it can be very much about money and, and Mm -hmm. this separation from we're all on this planet (laughs) together. So like, why do we feel like we can just, you know, pull this thread and like not impact everything else uh, that's around us? Yeah. It's a social issue too, because you have these big agriculture conglomerates that are effectively buying out family farmers. And maybe you've got a family farmer that has been you know, maintaining their land in a sustainable or reasonably sustainable way for a long period of time. But, you know, their kids grow up and move away and they don't have anyone to take care of the property anymore because there's not a lot of money in rural America anymore. And then the agribusiness comes along and buys the land and all of a sudden the lesser prairie chickens are gone. Yeah. And that's the sort of the way it happens in, in those places, unfortunately. Right. That's sort of the thing that also frustrates me is that, you know, there should be a lot of local support for these birds because it's, mm-hmm. I mean, they were already there. They were managing their land for these birds. And the issue is sort of that, you know, you see these huge agribusinesses and lobbying groups kind of come in and whip up yeah. this fervor that's all kind of artificial. That's yeah. It's actually like much better often for these for people living out there when the birds are around as opposed mm-hmm. to, oh, buying up their land and creating nothing but sprawling monocultures of whatever mm-hmm. that they might not even be benefiting from. No, that's mm-hmm. that's right. And when they come writing the big checks, you know, how can you expect people to hold out on principle? Yep. You know, yeah. you gotta you gotta pay the bills, I guess. So yep. And you're running practices that are constantly scaling up, and they're not exactly. allowing this sort of individualized planning for a small mm-hmm. parcel or a small protected area either. Yeah, it, yeah. It, you, you look at it that way, you see this lesser prairie chicken issue as a as a symptom of this sort of larger problem of of economy in the in the West, and there's no easy solution for it, unfortunately. There's not, Uh, you know, a federal classification technically or theoretically can come with additional federal funding and programs Mm -hmm. that are provided by the government, which I I don't know the specifics of what exists for lesser prairie chicken, but I imagine that there are the same as there are for for other species. But honestly, I've, I've been working with those projects some over the last few years and they're difficult. There are hoops to jump through to get them. There's not like staffing and guidance and supplies to make that happen. So uh, I, I think that's a great argument on the, the government level to increase the funding that comes with that. Mm-hmm. But yeah. again, not everybody at any stage wants that to happen. So I think yeah. that's probably a hard vote to pass. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I hate to end it on such a sad note, <laughs> but uh, I'm not sure there's any I'm other way around it. I'm still for you. The bush is still there. People should go we're, see them yeah, while they can. It's a great festival in Western Kansas <laughs> yeah. that, it, that, is, um, that is worth it. That you can yeah, go see people them. should really go cool. see them. That's, yeah. that's how to show the importance. As an afterthought, I went went to a prairie chicken leg, not a prairie chicken leg. I went to uh, Ecuador and I went to a Mm -hmm. cock of the rock leg and Mm -hmm. it was on private land and we just gave money to the person whose land the leg was on. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what it's maybe, maybe have, that's the future. Just give is, money to the people yeah. with the private legs. Directly, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Hey, whatever works, whatever keeps the birds out there. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I was just looking, there's it just happens to be someone in West Virginia starting it, but it's a new software that's like Airbnb for like private recreational lands and mm-hmm. allowing access. So I think that the intention is that it's for different things like hunting or birding or, birding or whatever you want to like lease your land out for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a pretty cool way to think about it. Yeah, it's totally working in private lands for birding and other parts of the world. Yeah, that's, that's, it'd be neat to see it here for sure. Uh, 
Uh, I uh, am going to talk about an article that is definitely not my forte. So it's on uh, wildfires in the West, but I think it's really interesting. Maybe it's a more uh, positive note after uh, the prairie chickens, but... (laughs) Um, So this is about pyro diversity, pyro meaning fire and the idea that there's this like spatial diversity that can come out from fires and that there's an increasing awareness of the importance of that for wildlife that use um, burned areas for habitat and whether that's for um, so so the bird and the study is blackback woodpecker. Um, which have always been known as something from like a high burn area that they're quick to move into that, that they use it for food and nesting. Um, But over the past few years, there have been a lot of studies that have come out that they need this pyrodiversity. And that in addition to this large um, high burn, uh, highly burned area that are also, or there's also a need for low burn areas that still have like, um, remaining greenery and that sort of mix of habitats, um, and that they benefit most, both that they prefer it and that there's a higher fledgling rate of success if they have that mix of habitat that results from a fire. Um, so this reminds me of golden winged warblers in the East where Mm -hmm. like they need an area that's recently cleared, but then especially once the fledglings, um, are on their own or once they're fledged, they're moving into a more heavily wooded area, that same Mm -hmm. sort of habitat diversity needs, or at least that's how my Eastern brain computes it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that's where this study starts and they're kind of putting together this evidence and then pointing out that, well, even with this data, after a burn, there's a lot of pressure to really quickly um, manage the habitat and that you aren't necessarily able to conduct research on whether this is like suitable habitat for blackback woodpeckers or whatever species you're using is kind of your keystone species to manage that. So you might be clearing the trees quickly, again, for economic reasons or for um, reducing the risk of more wildfires coming through the area or if you're doing a reforestation practice then you're going to clear the trees before putting it in and if you don't have time to assess what the the possibilities of wildlife are in that area then you might be making a decision that's not the best for that habitat so this uh group of researchers which is stillman et al there's several on it uh, actually made a tool that uh, does a measure of the pyrodiversity that is in an area for um, or that's happened after a fire and that you can actually use as a gauge of blackback woodpeckers, which they're using as sort of their uh, flagship species that will represent a mix of species that benefit from this. So they proved that they do better in a more pyrodiverse area. And then they built a model that actually incorporates um, the amount of time that's happened since the fire, which is different than what they've called static models that have existed before, and also the diversity of burn rates that happened. And I think the really cool thing about this is they have just a really simple website. um, And it's not just open to private land or public lands. You can use it on private lands, too. So they've created this really accessible tool that anybody can use. It's it's for the state of California and it's for blackback woodpeckers now. But they point out that you can um, with additional data that is for more states and species, you can basically use the same framework. And any landowner can get in and upload a shapefile of the property and you use remote sensing data to look at the burn characteristics and it basically spits you your output. It says it takes 10 minutes max on large properties and you have 
uh, data-backed results right there that you can use to guide your habitat management quickly. So cool stuff. Really yeah, exciting. Yeah, cool. for sure. Do you all remember the first time you sort of realized that fire was essentially an ecosystem builder? <laughs> yeah, I was maybe in like sixth grade. Yeah. <laughs> but I was obsessed with nature stuff anyway, so yeah. I was always reading about that. <laughs> I was in graduate I school. My uh, um, professor like showed us a pine cone from the Long Island Pine Barrens and did the whole sort of spiel of, you know, fire is so important to these trees, but, you know, with climate change, the fires are burning hotter and killing the seeds rather than letting them open. But I was just like, whoa, fire is good. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so y'all are, are a little bit younger than me, I think. Um, for me, it was the the Yellowstone fires in like 1988. Um, and I had to look up the year. All I remember is that there was a massive fire in Yellowstone when I was a kid and everyone was like, oh, it's awful. The whole national park is is burning down and it was it, it was it was a really big intense fire and it was really rough but then you know in the last the following three or four years there were all these articles in various nature uh nat- young people nature uh publications like ranger rick and, and national geographic world and stuff that i subscribed mm-hmm. to as a kid and they were like oh this is this is yellowstone's coming back and it showed all these really cool photos of you know formerly burned over trees hmm. and then you know the greenery coming back and the animals coming back to use them it was very kind of I remember that sort of blowing my mind and the fact that I don't know, I know that forest people have known this for years and years and years, but I think the general con- in the general consciousness, the idea that fire is this important builder of ecosystems and that you, it's not just all the same. There's like this matrices of different fire intensities and how that affects all this stuff is, is I don't know, it's just always really fascinating to me. And uh, it's really amazing to see how far, how far they're taking it. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially in the West and like, yeah, that's yeah, it's, it's just yeah. an entirely different level of that. Um, I also just love anything that's promoting like the diversity of habitat needs and mm-hmm. just the thought that habitats are constantly in a state of like rapid evolution Yeah, yeah. and how the needs of wildlife and plant life alike are just constantly shifting around. And I, I love thinking of habitat management is such a like dynamic thing exactly that's where you've always got these moving parts that you're just kind of nudging around yeah a lot of times we look at a national park or a state forest or whatever and we think this is this is what it's supposed to be like this is like the perfect ecosystem or whatever but no this stuff's constantly changing constantly Mm -hmm. in ways that we can't even imagine in the and it affects the birds that we see around us too. The ones that we see. I would say we have a patience problem here, and <laughs> we don't think of things on that sort of scale. Yeah, that's probably accurate. We're literally like, can we get it done now, like right now? <laughs> yeah, and totally. Nature, can we like do it once and never touch it again? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Nope. Nature is literally reminding us, you know, that that as much as much as there is destruction, there is still like rebirth. There's life. You know, yeah. it's always this cycle. Um, of of life and death, and that's you know part of nature's cycle that we should embrace more versus seeing it as a loss. Like you know, yeah. if we wait, <laughs> if we wait there's gonna... you know abundance there um, yeah. waiting around the corner. But yeah, I, I feel like again because very much tied to the economy and work culture that um, we're not as patient anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I also somehow take heart in the fact that um, you know there is certain amount of flexibility built into these natural systems that allow them to take in, take into account changes that happen 
we're we're in an era of a lot of uh, an Anthropocene where everything is changing in ways that aren't always um, positive. But um, yeah. uh, I, I I I hope that th- there aren't so many stresses that it that it causes that cracks irrevocably. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's more flexibility in these systems than people people generally accept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I uh, I don't know which species would be a great example of this, but I think mm-hmm. it would be really interesting to overlay this tool with a few species that use like the next couple stages of successional yeah, forests, yeah, for so sure. you can get this holistic picture of like what's going to happen at the different stages as well. Yeah, the thing about blackback woodpeckers is that they're awesome. it's really the bulk of what i wanted to say but like here in new york state like all of us boreal birds are really special to us because they only exist in this little pocket of boreal habitat upstate in this like little island and uh we used to have american three-toed woodpeckers uh, who are also fire sensitive but sort of to a lesser degree i think they need like kind of burned not very burned forest Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and they haven't been here in um well at least we're doing our breeding bird atlas they haven't found american three-toed woodpeckers yet um even though they were in the last breeding bird atlas and everyone's like not really hoping but maybe kind of hoping that there'll be a forest fire this year so that the (laughs) three-toed woodpeckers will show up i'm a like three-toed woodpecker truther that like they're still here in some boreal pocket of habitat that is totally inaccessible but all that is to say that like you know i think eventually as a birder you start to be like you know fires are great like we need them and they're very Mm -hmm. important with the obvious caveat being that like fires near people are not not and we need to make sure that we are taking care of people as well but you know i'm all i'm like a fire a, a pyro if you will a pyro, a pyromaniac, <laughs> pyromaniac <laughs> lover of all the birds who love fire yeah it's a great bumper sticker yeah i'm the same way pyromaniac but for birds yeah but for birds <laughs> yeah and just the idea that like managed fires can lead to less big fires you know yeah. just really simple yeah. logic like that um i've been chipping away at trying to figure out how to do prescribed fire on our property here oh, really? which is oh, that's cool. really difficult to navigate yeah. in west virginia and like the sort of it's like the on paper this is not advisable kind of thing <laughs> um because of the risks involved and then you know that whole thing so i'm, I'm going through like private practices to, to try to make it happen because it's so valuable mm-hmm. and yeah. yeah i it's uh very misunderstood but Tools like this that are open to the public hopefully will will help with that. Yeah, they do that down here in the southeast too with uh, red cockaded woodpecker habitat. To bring it back to red cock, it's not a red cockaded woodpecker podcast, but here we are talking about red cockaded woodpeckers again. <laughs> yeah, but um, there are a couple sites that are in the sand hills that are like surrounded on like three out of four sides by housing developments now, and they have to be like super careful when they burn there because they can only burn when the wind is like blowing out towards mm. the one side where there's no houses because otherwise people will complain. Um, and mm-hmm. I guess rightly so. Maybe you shouldn't build your housing development in the middle of a fire-sensitive landscape if you don't want smoke yeah, every once in a while. But uh, yeah, it's it's tough to navigate for sure. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to sneak in here was also that, or that I personally wanted to sneak in, was that, mm-hmm. you know, humans like are, people will often be like, oh, humans aren't can't be a part of the a conservation story. But at the same time, it's just like indigenous people in North America were lighting fires as part of agriculture for a very long time mm-hmm. and were acting as ecosystem architects that like allowed a lot of birds to can to to be alive here. I mean the Heath hen in yeah. the Northeast, which is now extinct, was like partially reliant on the fires that were being used in indigenous agriculture. So like people should be a part of the conservation story and more importantly, like should be starting fires. 
<laughs> Someone out there is going to take the entirely wrong message from <laughs> Ryan. Ryan Mandelbaum says more, you know, more fires. Like, yeah. Well, <laughs> I. Fires. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. Um, well, tying this back into the last article, I actually spent some time earlier this year at a fire research station outside oh, of cool. Tallahassee and was doing some projects that were involving reforestation. And we were trying to create this sort of one size fits all program that worked for wildlife management that could work for agricultural purposes that could create harvestable timber and also sequester carbon. Mm -hmm. Um, Those four things don't all work perfectly in conjunction with each other because there are diverse habitat needs for all of that. Um, But it was actually one of our focus species was gopher tortoise that we were using for that. And I um, I hope I'm not wrong on this. I think it was Georgia that maybe just delisted it as endangered within the state. One of the states said, and it was like, oh, we don't have to worry about this anymore from a programmatic standpoint because it's not endangered anymore. And it's yeah. like, oh, no, no don't change do- your whole program yeah. design just on that. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Lots of things working together there. But For sure. habitat management, fun stuff. Yeah. A lot of moving parts. Listeners are probably aware that we are in the throes of the spring migration period. Um, here in New York City, as you may also know, we are a huge migrant, uh, you might say hotspot, you also might say trap, you also might say death trap. Um, 230,000 <laughs> birds die annually here in New York City. Uh, what happens is they're attracted to the lights uh, and then they die when they fly into the windows. Um, so. I think you might also remember that often kind of goes viral these videos of, or these photos of like the piles of migratory birds that are dead at the undersides of skyscrapers with birds all of you want to see like Connecticut warbler and morning warbler. Um, so with that, um, a council member, Francisco Moya, recently proposed a bill that limits nighttime illumination for certain buildings in New York City. Um, it's obviously with its limits. There's only it's only for buildings where people aren't occupying it at night. Um, it allows for things like seasonal displays, which can be up till midnight. It allows for storefront displays until midnight. Um, but uh, the hope is that um, by turning off some lights, especially in private buildings, uh, that some of our uh, birdies will be able to make it through um, with less challenge in the way than they are right now. Uh, there was a bill in the past couple of years that um, the city-owned lighting was ruled to be able to be turned off as part of this in 2021, everybody was very excited. Um, but obviously regulating private buildings is really important as well because so many of the buildings in the city are private. Um, this bill was introduced in 2021, but didn't make it to a vote because a lot like you know our prairie chickens, <laughs> private interests, the real estate board in this case said it would disrupt the operation. They were concerned about the amount of time it would take to implement. Um, but there was a big rally here in New York City in support of the bill um, last week. Uh, a lot of folks I know at New York City Audubon were there and are getting involved. And uh, here's to hoping that this bill makes it through. And if it did, you know, it'll hopefully have a really uh, awesome impact on our migratory birds here in the city. Um, and New York City Audubon has been doing some really awesome work. Uh, a, they are going to be changing their name away from New York City Audubon, uh, which is cool. But also, um, they've been behind a lot of legislation here in the city um, such as lights out bills and bird friendly glass uh, bills. So uh, hopefully, you know, this one could be another uh, feather in their cap. Really hoping. Is that pun intentional? <laughs> I'll never, <laughs> You'll I'll never, never tell. Say. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine what it's like to be a migratory bird now compared to 40 years ago, 50 <laughs> years ago, 70 years ago, 100 years ago. The, the Eastern Seaboard is just so lit up all the way from. Yeah. 
Baltimore, DC, all the way up to Boston for the most part. And yeah, I, it, it's, it's wild. Um, and it's, it's heartening to see efforts like this go to come to fruition. Hopefully it passes and, um, it's got some regulatory heft behind it so that they can make sure it, uh, it helps the birds. This is something that's really like in New York city and what we're trying to do New York city naturalists is just like really tell the world how important this city is or like for birds. I mean, we're just this huge bird magnet with these really bright is. lights right along yep. the, you know, the core of the Atlantic flyway. And, you know, there's so many birds in this city. There's a reason it's like such a popular bird watching destination, but like, we don't want there to be so many birds in this city. We want them to safely <laughs> travel yeah. around and through the city. Uh, and right now we're sort of doing a pretty, we're not safely ferrying these birds to where they need to go. We're sort of killing a lot of them. Yeah. Is there like a public awareness that this is something that's taking place or that, do you have any idea on like what the feedback is like? I'm just curious, is the average New Yorker like, yeah, we're taking these initiatives, our city's making great steps or are they like completely unaware or what, what's the perception out there? It's kind of hard to say because right now, like birds and nature and urban wildlife is definitely having a moment in the city, like with all of these new tours and walks and influencers and, mm. and, and you know, you're, people are starting to know. But I don't think that there's actually like this general awareness that um, there are birds in New York City other than pigeons. And I don't <laughs> think that there's this general awareness that like, you know, I think people just like see dead birds sometimes. It's like people see a lot of dead things when they're walking around the yeah. city. They don't probably think very much of it um they actually probably don't see dead birds because uh, you know by the time that people are out and about and and you know potentially seeing these things they're picked up by you know any number of predators that are also living in new york city cats and rats and um all that stuff as well yeah we also have this uh project safe flight at new york city audubon mm -hmm. where folks are actually going out and you know collecting dead birds or documenting dead birds so you know we don't I think it could be good if people left the dead birds and every day people had to see just yeah. how many dead birds there were. Hmm. I mean, I'm frequently walking through Midtown is obviously the worst for this, but I, I feel like every time I go through Midtown, I'm either ferrying a bird up to the wild bird fund or, you know, texting my friends asking if they need a specimen or just kind of like kicking a bird to the side and feeling sad, you know, but we have a lot of that here in the city. You're always, you, you really get very close to a lot of migratory birds who have had, some stressful nights is there a uh, particular building that is the worst for this do you know um i think that there's some really uh there that must be information that's available somewhere yeah. i think there's some really good candidates i think that the freedom tower and the buildings surrounding it are really bad yeah. um so a lot tall, of the buildings yeah, yeah glass. just glass <laughs> um the bank of america tower in midtown is one where i frequently see a lot of bird collisions it's just right next to bryant park mm -hmm. Um, which is kind of like another little mini bird uh, sanctuary. And I bet you that some of the glass buildings in the north end of Central Park probably are really high on that list. But this is like anecdotal. Yeah, I bet you yeah, if yeah. I look it up, I can tell you the actual answer. That's all right. I was just looking for anecdotal stuff anyway. So Yeah, I would, <laughs> I would say that's definitely um, what you were just asking, thinking about um, awareness. And I feel like I've been texted a lot. I've been emailed a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. I found a dead bird, whether mm -hmm. it's downtown Columbus or, you know, in their backyard or they've witnessed a window collision. They don't know that these initiatives exist. It's yeah. like, mm -hmm. what do I do with this? Do I throw it away? Do I leave it? You know, and every now and then I'll mention um, the, you know, lights out programs and, you know, look more into those things. But I think most uh people 
don't have a clue or that they, you know, there's groups of people that go out and like collect, you know, collect data and Mm -hmm. all of that stuff. So I think, yeah, it's definitely um, more of an awareness issue. And then um, thinking about like where to take them if they do survive, you know, I don't know what the science is behind um, like post uh, collision, what's happening with the birds that actually end up in, um, the care of like wildlife centers or yeah, rehab centers. I, I, my guess um, is it's so. a coin flip. I know it's hard to treat some birds like that. They have such mm-hmm. small bones <laughs> mm-hmm. and fragile bones. Yeah. Such small bones. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting. And then I think about education. So like, is there, I don't know if it's anybody thinks about this, but it's I'm thinking like in, in terms of like, um, intersections with like city regional planners, mm-hmm. you know, and birders mm-hmm. and um, researchers or, you know, citizen science focused projects. Like, I feel like there's so much value to that because it, it isn't just about birds, but it's it's kind of the collective effort um, to make sure that these things don't continue to happen. Yeah, that stuff really informs those decisions, no doubt. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. I you know it'd be nice if, you know, you could make a decision from scratch and in, in terms of how to, you know, make plans for the city with that in hand. But a lot of times we're just kind of retrofitting these things to these already existing infrastructure that we have. I think all the time about like what kind of public awareness campaign could be a, a sort of large scale thing. And mm-hmm. what would it be like if there were a lot of just individuals who could get behind the concept of something and understand the why? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Also, campaigns that don't like alienate people. I think that this is a really yeah. easy place to just be like, "This is us working together. Mm-hmm. This is right. really mm-hmm. exciting." You want to turn your light off rather than like, yeah. you evil being." <laughs> yeah. yeah, I want you to eat in the dark. Yeah, yeah. right. The onus think- is put on smaller groups versus the businesses or the private. I feel like we're like the way we're promoting it just doesn't make sense to me sometimes. Of just like lights out, but then there's still so many businesses that aren't necessary like i feel like on a bigger scale that needs to happen versus just yeah individuals or or small communities i think that's the importance of legislation like this i mean Mm -hmm. it's not these are the kinds of things that like the empire state building isn't going to turn its lights off unless you know people get really mad about it and they legislate on it yeah uh for this month's question of the month i admit i uh struggled a little bit coming up with something so i did turn to the internet uh, specifically bird twitter which is still uh, gamely holding on throughout that that side struggles i asked for some ideas and got several of them that i will probably save for down the road but one that struck me is particularly timely this time comes from mo Stike, who is a, a frequent guest on this month in birding uh, herself who asks and i am paraphrasing just a little if you could personally replicate the migration pattern of any bird what would it be and why? Yeah, thanks to Mo for that question. And thanks to everyone else who, who replied. If you could go where the bird goes, which one would you choose? I instantly think of the Arctic Turn. Oh, yeah. World <laughs> Traveler right here. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. it's literally like so much time in the air. Like it's yeah. crazy how far they travel. I would be so tired. <laughs> <laughs> I would just be like, I feel like this bird is running on fumes, but no again, doubt. you know, the, their yeah. makeup and like they're built for it. But at yeah. the same time, it's just mind blowing to me how 
um, pretty much is it pole to pole that they're oh even more I, they Ugh. put some geolocators on uh, Arctic terns a, so, a, a <laughs> few years ago. I don't know exactly when, but they tracked ones that were nesting in, in uh, you know, eastern Canada, and they went all the way down to the South Atlantic off the coast of South America, and then they hang a left and went around Africa and tooled around in the Indian Ocean for a while, <laughs> and then they came back and went back to their to their breeding grounds all in one calendar year. See, that's the kind of mile, mile points I would want to have. Yeah, yeah. Mauritius, yeah. a lot of, lot of lovely, <laughs> lovely beaches on that tour. Yeah. <laughs> Arctic turn doesn't count because they can eat during their migration. Oh, period. okay. All right, fair. It is like, sure, they, they do do that. But also like their turns, they are all, it's like, uh, they're just live. They're like, you know, living in a bowl living of their soup. lives on the yeah. ocean. Yeah. It's like, I mean, these like godwits that are like digesting their genitalia so that they could fly <laughs> for seven days straight is like that's the one that boggles my mind although but would I mean, you want to do that I, <laughs> no that's not my answer my answer is great cat bird <laughs> sit on my butt it's like getting a dream a switch he's like but no that's yeah, not my no, answer wait, i go 20 feet every year <laughs> <laughs> i migrate from my grandma's house to my mom's house <laughs> <laughs> yep that's that a good one that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. This question uh, was a stressful one for me. Oh, all right. Now I have I have two answers. Great, smuggle um, them. Yeah. Okay. Cool. I will. <laughs> well, okay. First, I was thinking about like big migrations, so I was thinking like godwits and and mm-hmm. arctic terns, and I was like, I don't want to stare at the ocean that many days of the year, and I also <laughs> don't want to uh, have to go through the digestive feats of like making the stretch that the godwits make. So. Yeah. First answer, if this is something that I'm doing every year for the rest of my birdie little life, then I would choose Canada Warbler. Okay. Which range, they're, they're here in the higher elevations mm-hmm. and can go clear up through the boreal forest. So, because I like where I am. I like it here. <laughs> and then spend their, uh, they, they go down, I forget which way. I think it's in the fall that they're kind of staying down the uh, Central America mm-hmm. rather than making the the jump over the ocean and then are wintering in Northern South America, which is another place I really like. Yeah. Yeah. You know what, Molly? I was actually thinking the exact same. Really? <laughs> I was, yeah. I was <laughs> nice. thinking like a black throated <laughs> blue warbler because yeah. they uh, they winter, I mean, they they breed in the Appalachians. It's it's lovely mm. up there, nice and cool. And then they, they winter in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. uh, which is in a, not such a bad place to be. And uh, and I was tr- I was trying to think of a bird that uh, that uh, wintered in, in northern South America for the same reasons uh, you chose it because I, I love that part of the world oh, so much, um, but I couldn't think of it. I'm glad you thought of Canada warbler because that's a really good one because all the ones all the birds I all the warblers I could think of were ones that also summered in like boreal Canada. Yeah, and I like right. Canada, but I don't want to go all the way up into like the black fly infested part of the uh, of the <laughs> continent to spend you know however many months up there. Like morning warbler or blackburnian or warbler, they're, they're they're way up there. Mm-hmm. I guess well, blackburnian's is, not so high. This is what makes gray catbirds so good too, because yeah. gray catbirds not no, all I, of them are you. only moving between yeah. North Carolina and South Carolina. <laughs> Some gray catbirds are going all the way to Central America. That's you true. Know, gray catbirds they do whatever they want. Yeah, that, they they do just yeah. pick a year and a. An individual, and you can make it work. Yeah, maybe something like uh, fork-tailed flycatcher. So you, you summer yeah. in uh, Argentina mm-hmm. and winter in northern South America, and sometimes turn up in the United States just kind of randomly. It's <laughs> a good idea. Yeah, you want to take like a trip one yeah. year, you just yeah. go more north. Yeah. Well, then, so my second answer, I was yeah. thinking. Oh, well, all right. Yeah. Great. Yeah, 
I, I'm squeezing both in here. Yep. I was like, well, what if this is just a one-time thing that I'm doing it? Mm -hmm. And so then I was thinking about parts of the world that I haven't got to experience as much. And then I was looking at um, migrants that winter in Australia. Okay. And I settled on sharp-tailed sandpiper. Okay. Who breed in northern Russia. Um, mm -hmm. And then they come down through China, Mongolia. And it says to Japan, Korea, Philippines, and New Guinea. And then end up in Australia for their their wintering grounds and if i were to do a one-time trip that would be a great one that would be the nice. one you'd see some yeah. cool stuff and yeah. again yeah. i was trying to avoid something that just like hopped the ocean because yeah. mm -hmm. i wanted to like i want to like see a some specific land. stellar sea eagle <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what that bird's seen i mean that word if you're talking about individual birds that would be a good one because yeah, that's it, pretty cool. Might have gone all the way down to Texas before going over to right. Eastern Canada. Right? Yeah, I mean that's yeah. covering a lot of east to west. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of country. Clocking those miles. <laughs> or uh, northern wheat ear, which was another one that, that that's one I looked my, at. Yeah. yeah, because they have the they almost all of them in sub-Saharan Africa, um, which is a cool place to be and cool place to go birding. And but half the population goes and breeds in like Europe mm -hmm. all the way over to Greenland and and northern. Northeastern Canada, and then the other half of the population goes all the way over to Northwest, uh, Northwest Asia. Yeah, Northeast mm. Asia. I should yeah, say. I got a good one. What about okay. Puerto Rican nightjar? Ooh. Just Puerto Rican nightjar who stays in Puerto Rico. <laughs> one, I mean, okay, <laughs> that's it. I guess uh, you're technically you're, you're technically right, but I don't know if that's in the spirit. Of the spend question. your whole life in Puerto Rico. In Puerto Rico, non-migratory, just yeah. hanging out. Living your life. <laughs> the one Carolina Wren in my yard. <laughs> Beautiful, relaxing. Just life. have to have a really nice yard, though. Yeah, well, yeah, it's, it's all right. It's not great, but it's okay. <laughs> well, they don't really care, do they? They don't care. No, it's got a little electrical box it can make a nest in. It doesn't really care. It's all you need. That's right. Yeah, it was a really good question, though. It really and sent me a down a one. rabbit hole. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Mo. I appreciate yeah. that. Thank you to uh, to all three of you, Ryan, Molly, and Nicole. It was great to have you. This was a fun conversation. Uh, I'm glad to talk to you. Uh, have a have a great spring. Have a great summer, and we'll see you next time. Sounds great. See ya. Thank you. Bye. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is, as always, to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our fantastic magazines edited by Frank Izagiri and Ted Floyd, who you may know from the podcast. You get discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Beauty of Books, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, so much more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Sarah Carr of Pittsburgh, North Carolina, Judy Heyman and family of Wycombe, Pennsylvania, Stephen Kessler and Kimoy Campbell of New Rochelle, New York, Catherine Touchton of Valdosta, Georgia, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as part of the reason for doing so. Thank you so much for that. Welcome to the ABA. Thanks for your support. Technical production is by John Lowry, who looks to whoever the birder was who predicted the expansion of Eurasian waterfowl into Atlantic Canada, New England, and elsewhere as a real goose sayer. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon, who is able to predict the exact date and time her early migrating warblers will arrive in her yard, which makes her something of a palm reader. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media. Most everywhere is American Birding Association on Twitter. We are at ABA. If I were to correctly predict the location of the ABA's first record of intermediate egret, would that make me a heron medium? Questions, comments, come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next time. <laughs> <laughs>